Because big ideas only matter if they turn into lots of action. We always have to be looking at Jesus and going, how should I live? So, if our behavior is not submitted to God's will, then even the loftiest religious ideas are worthless. And I mean that. We've looked at the Pharisees, the priests, the scribes, the Sadducees, but Paul had another term for people like this. Noisy gong and clanging cymbal. I've done this before, and Amy, I'm sorry to hit your cymbals. Um, but this is, Paul's, this is Paul's idea of what Jesus is talking about today. Um, God loves the world. You can be forgiven in Jesus. Now, did you notice the loving things I said, or did you notice the noisy gong? That's actually my symbol anyway. We want to avoid that. So let's look at this argument from the Sadducees. Verses 20-something to 33. The Sadducees, let's talk a, bit, a little bit about who they are first. The Sadducees are a little bit different animal than the Pharisees that we're more familiar with. And we can talk more about the, you know, the Sadduceical. Is that a word? That sounds like a word. That sounds like a good word. Let's, we'll talk more about the philosophy of the Sadducees a little bit on Wednesday night, but, but for purposes of our, our time together, here's what you need to know, that they did not believe in an afterlife. They did not believe in the resurrection. But you also need to know that that was born of the fact that they only accepted the first five books of our Old Testament as authoritative. So they only took the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. Um, the, the, the Torah can sometimes refer to oral Torah and all of the prophets and writings, or sometimes it can refer to just those first five books. And when they use the word Torah, they just meant um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And if you are looking through um, just those books, you know, there's not a lot about the resurrection of the dead. And again, all morning, we're not talking about Jesus' resurrection, we're talking about ours. The Sadducees did not anticipate that there was anything after this life. No physical resurrection for me or you. They didn't accept the writings or the prophets of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, an understanding about the afterlife is kind of an unfolding thing. If you start at, the, start at Genesis and keep going, um, there's very little in the Pentateuch. In those first five books about the afterlife and really... At least to these men, there's no evidence of a bodily resurrection. Moses is not exactly 1500, but if you just kind of remember, so you pass a Bible quiz sometime, if you've got Abraham about 2000, Moses about 1500, and David about 1000, you're about there. So if Moses is about 1500 BC, it's not really for hundreds of years after is like Israel is in exile in Babylon and there's prophets and Assyria is coming and all, all that's happening hundreds and hundreds of years later that this more developed like day of the Lord in the prophets um, is, is kind of fleshed out a little bit. So if you were to ask the Sadducees, they would say that they are the more conservative, faithful, theological branch of thinkers. None of these liberals who read kings. You know what I mean? That's what they would have said. I mean, maybe Isaiah was fine, but it's not, it's not the Bible. 
This was the way the Sadducees thought. And that led um, to a lack of belief in the afterlife. And it might, it might be obvious, but this led to this group being very comfortable cozying up to Rome. Because if this life is all you get, why should we experience suffering or sorrow in this life if we are not going to benefit from it in the next life? If this life is all there is, we better make this life as comfortable as we can possibly make it. So, they bring a very heady, philosophical, hypothetical, let's be honest, a little bit ridiculous question to Jesus. Not because they care about the answer. And Jesus sniffs this out again. The Sadducees are not sitting around going, my sister-in-law married seven brothers because of their faithfulness to Leverite marriage in the Old Testament. What's going to happen to her in the after? No, they just want to trip Jesus up. They don't care about anybody. They care about their camp, their tribe being right. I'll talk about this as we go. But if we wake up every day going, I'm going to live my life to prove my tribe and camp is right, you're going to come up with stupid questions like this. We've talked in weeks past about the danger of wanting to hang on to your own power. As we saw those priests wanting to hang on to wealth, wanting to hang on to influence. And we talked about, you'll never be able to submit to the power of Jesus while you're trying to hang on to your own power. And I believe that. If you are building your kingdom, you cannot be fully integrated into the kingdom of God. It's just not what's going to happen. You have to submit your power. Jesus is a threat if you want to be king. Because I don't know if you know about kings, except in Narnia, there's only one at a time. But today we're going to have to add to that. Not only are we going to have to let go of our power, of our wealth, of our influence, whatever that is, we're also going to have to let go of our perspective. We're also going to have to let go of our tribe, our understanding, in order to submit to Jesus. We're going to have to say, and I think that we would say, look, there's probably some amens in the room if I say God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than ours. I don't have a full understanding of, of you know, eternity and the whole universe and all that can be known. Nope, God, that's God's stuff and not mine. And we'd all go, that's right, that's right, that's right. So you want to argue about Calvinism? Do you see what I'm saying? We're going to have to let go of our tribe if we're going to fully follow Jesus, assuming and joyfully, like this is a great thing to give up, to go, I'm not going to think of, I'm not going to go talk to Jesus as a Sadducee, I'm going to go talk to Jesus as Grant, and go, Jesus, I have questions, and he will lovingly lead me. But many people approach questions about life and faith, not as pilgrims following Jesus, but as representatives of a tribe. I'm sorry, Calvinists, that I've called you out. I'm, we're all Calvinists to some extent. John Calvin is wonderful. Read the Institutes. Don't, we can't argue about it until you've all read the Institutes. It's great. It's wonderful. You'll love it. But we can't approach Jesus as a Western Christian. We can't approach Jesus as a Reformed Christian. We can't uh, as a progressive Christian, as a Baptist, as a Methodist, as a fundamentalist, as an evangelical 
There's lots of camps to join too. Oh, they, they write books and I have a lot of them if you want to borrow one, but like three views on whatever it is. And we're kind of encouraged to be like, well, pick a camp. What's your view? But we can't approach Jesus as a camper from our tribe. He's bigger, more grand, and not only that, more fun. There's more joy in following Jesus as a person instead of approaching him, trying to make sure that Jesus' theology checks out with your favorite tribe or camp. We need to appreciate the perspective of lots of camps. Man, thinkers of all kinds of schools of thought and theology have been super helpful to me, and I'm sure you too. But when we come to Jesus, we don't do it as a member of our tribe or whatever. We don't come even as a member of Lighthouse or a member of our family. No, we come to him just as we are, and he leads us. So that's what happened to the Sadducees. Surely the question they asked was not even the most pressing question of the day. You know, I wonder if we, if we were approaching Jesus from our tribe, you know, and we had a minute to, to ask Jesus a question. I'm sorry, my throat's a little. We had a minute to ask Jesus a question. I wonder if it would be kind of a ridiculous question. You know, I wonder if it would be like, well, the last thing we heard on the radio or some, the last book we read or something like that, we'd be like, Jesus, well, how do you feel about this? I mean, I'm just trying to say that Leverite marriage was probably not the most important topic going around in first century Roman-occupied Jerusalem. In the middle of the Roman Empire, this couldn't be the most important question. But it is a way to prove to Jesus that they have the only proper tribe, the only Orthodox camp. So, first thing we should do as we learn from the Sadducees is go, hey, you know what, maybe this is a, a camp or a theological you know, tribe or something that best articulates the way I see things or where I am right now, or I really appreciate the thinkers that are kind of in this movement, but let's only identify as those who follow Christ and put no other layers in there. If I was going to start a church tomorrow, if somehow God was like, nope, Grant, we finally found a good pastor for Lighthouse, and I'd be like, okay, that's great. And, and I want you to go over here and start, it'd be a Baptist church. That's the way I think. That's the, I, I, I think believer baptism is the, what the scriptures teach. I'm, memorial communion is what, how I read it. Um, so that's, that's what I would do. But if I put those ideas before just wholeheartedly following Jesus, and it's pretty easy for me to be an heir. Not only be an heir, but be maybe even something worse than being an heir, being useless. Because... We are not trying to make the world more Baptist or more anything. We are trying to see what would happen if we were 100% committed to whatever Jesus wants us to do. So the mistake that these guys make that we need to be sure that we don't copy is, you know, Jesus needs to be approached relationally. You know, all of this like, We've talked about it before, all the flattery that precedes all these questions in Luke 20. Oh, good teacher. Oh, we know you. Oh, you're the best. No, instead of all the pretense, we need to have prayer lives. Like, have you noticed that it's pretty easy to talk to people like you talk to people and then get on your knees and go, thouest, heavenliest, fatherest, please thine, mine, wayest. No, but we have to approach Jesus relationally. 
like he loves you. Just right now. Just approach him as you. Not only relationally, but we have to approach Jesus humbly. If you get on your knees to try to prove to Jesus that you're right, it's not going to go great. You might leave that conversation frustrated. Not only that, but we need to approach Jesus directly. You know, one of the things that I think is most important theologically to affirm is the priesthood of all believers. That I, uh, we talk about this quite a bit, I don't like pedestals, I don't put you on it, I don't want you to put me on it. We're all in this together, we're a family, God's called me to a particular work with a particular skill set, but we are the priesthood. There is no mediator between God and man except His Son. So approach Him frequently and directly and honestly and humbly. The Sadducees get shut up in this conversation because they do none of those things. They're from one particular perspective. It's with pride. It's with arrogance. And it's, it's, it's through the one tight lens that they have. If we loosen up a little and just get to know Jesus as Jesus, we're going to have more fun being Christians. So let's look at Jesus' response. Verse 34 Jesus, and Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain that age um, and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in the marriage. I love this. So Jesus goes, this is what Jesus' answer is to them. He goes, you guys just don't understand the afterlife at all. Like, you, you are missing out on the whole thing. He goes, look, you're making it sound like the afterlife, like what comes after our physical death is just an extension. Now, in one sense, you're going to still be you. I'm going to still be Grant. But there is something profound that is going to happen when we leave this life and enter the next that these guys are missing entirely. These guys are taking this one Old Testament law, this Leverite marriage. You remember this. They explain it beautifully that um, if, uh, if a a husband dies, his brother should uh, marry his, uh, his widow. And this was supposed to be, so she wasn't destitute. So there was land still. So the, the rights of land ownership, she would have a place and it was to, to help people in the kingdom of Israel. And they're taking this one Old Testament law that's intended to make sure that a widow wouldn't be destitute and, and would be able to stay on her family land. And they've ripped out the love and care. They've just ripped out the heart of God in this law. And they're trying to use it to prove their own misguided view of the world. And he goes, you, look, you guys, you think everybody else is making too big of the afterlife. You're not making a big enough deal of the afterlife. Do you know how spectacular it is going to be? Do you know what we have to look forward to? Marriage is wonderful. I, I like Tiffany quite a bit. Yeah, and she, I don't know if it's just Stockholm Syndrome, but she likes me too. And I would love it if there were scriptures that would be like, oh, and then you and Tiffany are going to be married for all eternity. But, but this is a deal until one of us dies. And we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about marriage from this passage because Jesus doesn't spend a lot of time talking about marriage. Jesus says just enough to go, guys, you are, under, you are misunderstanding the whole idea of the resurrection. 
It's almost like these guys are saying, like, um, they're taking this earthly institution that's important and wonderful and great, and they're just saying, oh, so it's just like that for eternity? It's almost like they're saying, well, Jesus, uh, the retirement age is 65 here, so what's the retirement age in your so-called heaven? You know, it's like that ridiculous. Like, what are you talking about? You are taking earthly stuff and applying it to the age to come. Paul will later say that our bodies are more like seeds than the final plant. That's a neat image. Like when you have a sunflower seed um, and you look at it, you examine it, you would never be able to predict the beautiful, glorious thing that it's going to produce once you put it in the ground. And that's what Paul says in Corinthians 2. He says, look, that's where your body is. You're not going to be able to predict. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be great. If nobody had ever seen a sunflower before and they were holding the sunflower seed and you were trying to explain what it was going to be, you'd never be able to put words to it. Our whole lives are like that. All of life we know is like that. And I do. I admit that I would love to be married to Tiffany forever. I'm not sure how I feel about what Jesus is saying here, but if we experience just a glimpse of the unity and the beauty and the satisfaction and the, the, the wonderful intimacy and connectedness that can come in marriage, what, what, what is that a seed of? Like, what will bloom in the afterlife when that is done? These guys are so caught up in being right that they are missing a chance to marvel. They are missing a chance to dream a little bit, to be dazzled. Verse 35 reminds us that we're not going to turn into angels, but we are going to share some awesome qualities with them that we currently don't. Sadducees are fully convinced that this life is all there is. There is no hope in thinking like that. I think Jesus wants to spark their imagination. I don't think Jesus wants to, you know, solve this controversy of Leverite marriage. I think Jesus wants to go, guys, if you would just trust the scriptures, if you would just trust me, you would be dreaming. Your imagination would be sparking about how great a hope we have in the resurrection. See, when you approach Jesus from a particular camp, you spend all your time arguing about stuff that's not going to matter in eternity. Instead of having the hope of a resurrection. Then in verse 37 to 44, Jesus says, well, of another thing, you guys don't even understand the scriptures that you do trust. Like you've got the first five books of Moses. All you have to do is is." understand these properly. And this is so wise. And I want you to remember this. If, if um, there's somebody that you feel like you need to interact with, Jesus meets them where they are. He's not going to spend a whole bunch of time going, well, you guys are dumb to only accept the first five books of uh, the Old Testament. No, rather, wouldn't it be funny if Jesus called it the Old Testament then? Um, uh, but rather, you know, you guys need to also read and trust the prophets. But he doesn't do that. He says, no, you only have this very limited understanding, but even in this limited understanding, if you really understood those scriptures, you would know. And if there is somebody in your life that just has a little kernel of something they might believe in, well, I believe in a higher power, you talk about that. He meets them where they are. 
And he, so Jesus says, you know, think about Moses as he's having a conversation with God in the burning bush. Moses knew that Isaac and Jacob were no longer around, but that they weren't dead. Uh, what did Fenton just read to us? That they were alive to God. When we approach Jesus with pride, we might leave with our tail between our legs. But if we approach him actually seeking truth, we will leave excited with full hearts. Verse 41 to 44, Jesus takes this idea of eternity and, and the reality of a spiritual world a step further. And I love that now he quotes the Psalms. Um, so he, he uh, talks to the Sadducees and he says, look, even in the book of, books of Moses, you can understand that there's a resurrection. And then the scribes, who maybe are a subset of the Sadducees or maybe another little group, they go, hey, Jesus, you answered great. I love that. Give Jesus a compliment. Good answer, Jesus. We've got nothing. No, we don't have any more questions to ask you. And then Jesus approach, uh, uh, addresses them or maybe the larger crowd who do accept more books than just the first five. And he goes, do you remember the Psalms? Do you remember how David says, Yahweh says to Adonai, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This is Psalm 110 and Israel had taken this to be a messianic prophecy. And also the understanding was that the Messiah was going to be the son of David. So the Messiah was somebody that David could talk to and call Lord and also was going to be his descendant. And Jesus says, well, how is that possible? If the Messiah was going to be David's descendant, could the Messiah also be the one that David calls Lord? So Jesus takes this opportunity, maybe not just to the Sadducees, but to the people who are following him, and doesn't only just want to have an argument about, oh, can you imagine if Jesus just launched into 45 minutes about Leverite marriage? Oh, we would skip that chapter in Luke. It would be boring. But instead, he starts with the question they have. He doesn't ignore them. He starts with the question they have and goes, no, actually, there is good reason in Moses to believe that there is life after death. And then I want you to think about your expectations for the Messiah. And then he says, and not only that, I'm standing right here, it's me. Finds a way to draw us to who he is. Not only is the afterlife great, not only do you lack understanding about a vast spiritual realm, but I am the point of the whole thing. So that's the argument he has with the Sadducees, who are not doing a lot of good in the world, except for the Sadducees. And then Jesus starts talking about something entirely different. And sometimes in the Gospels, this happens. The author kind of goes, and now we're talking about this. But this, you go, Luke, why did you put this right after all this discussion about the afterlife and, 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 and Jesus being the, the Messiah and why all of this like heady uh, philosophical stuff and, and, and the greatness of who Jesus is. And then why now write and in hearing of all the people, he says to his disciples, beware the scribes who walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses for, the, for a pretense, make long prayers, and will, uh, they will receive greater condemnation. 
Why would this warning about religious hypocrisy be placed right here in Luke's narrative? Why, after these intellectual, philosophical attacks from Sadducees and Pharisees and scribes and priests, does Jesus look at those following him, those that are growing in trust of him, and goes, guys, I want you to watch out for religious hypocrisy. Don't follow leaders who walk around like learned peacocks. You know, I have to say, so much of what I learned about being a pastor comes from a guy named Dave Hong, and Dave was the pastor out at Sanctuary Bible Church for years and years, and he was my boss, and it's just how you learn to do anything is sit at the feet of a guy like that, just a real, real mentor and an important guy to me, and he had his doctorate, and so he's like Dr. David M. Hong, and, and I can't tell you how many conferences or whatever that I would be at with him, and somebody would introduce themselves, hi, I'm the right reverend Dr. So-and-so, and Dave would go, hi, I'm Dave. And man, you learn something from that. I remember one time, um, very early after Dave got to um, Sanctuary Bible Church, um, after we had fifth Sunday brunches. So after the fifth Sunday, we'd have a big meal and all that. And I remember going to the youth center and locking stuff up and coming back, and Dave was vacuuming the fellowship hall. It's a pretty big room. No arrogance, no why me. Just preached a sermon of his life led a church, has to be available to everybody, and just whistling while he works as he's vacuuming the place after. Why? Right here, in this part of the story, does Jesus go, you watch out for learned peacocks strutting around like they know everything. Watch out for guys that enjoy being honored in the marketplace, who enjoy being introduced as a big shot, who enjoy being invited to all the best feasts, who prey on widows instead of caring for them, who make long, pretentious prayers so they can look like a big shot. Why now? Maybe it's this. But after challenge, after challenge, after challenge from Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees, Jesus is just sick of people who want to talk about God without caring for anybody. Almost like Jesus is saying, look, we can stand here all day. I can answer every question you guys have. But while we're sitting here, is anybody bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? While we're sitting here arguing about Leverite marriage, is anybody actually loving anybody in this town? Can we stop talking about religion and start expressing some religion? You know, around here we articulate our mission statement is be loved and then worship. And it's not be loved and then go argue with people about how best we can be loved. but we understand how much God loves us and then we express that in love for the world. That's worship. We should take this seriously as we decide what kind of leaders to follow. Smart and articulate is great, but are they humble? Good ideas about the world are fine, but where does their money go? Are they servant-hearted? 
Are they happy to vacuum up after? We can talk about God's love and what the church should do, what the government should do, what the, this organization or that organization should do. But here's the question. Do we do anything to make the world better? Do we just talk about things that would make the world better or are we pouring out our lives trying to make the world a better place? Let's not follow leaders who don't walk what they talk and let's not be leaders who talk without walking what we talk. Let's not talk about what the church should do without being the church. Let's not talk about what's wrong with the world without pouring out our lives to make the world a better place in the name of Jesus. It's one thing to be able to articulate what's wrong with the world. We talked about this a lot last week. It's entirely another to as an act of worship, not an act of anger, not because those are the bad guys or these guys are wrong or we're right, not that, but just out of an act of worship to say, I'm going to do all I can to make sure the kingdom of man is as much like the kingdom of God as it can be. I'm going to pray, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then I'm going to do his will right now on earth like I will when I'm in heaven. So then there's the consequence of big ideas with no action. If I could just read the first four verses to you of the next chapter, it says, Jesus looked up and saw rich people putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor woman put two small copper coins in. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in all more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So chapter 21 begins by Jesus looking up and seeing the scene that we're, most of us are familiar with, Bunch of rich dudes. Can you picture like first century super religious rich dude? Got them in your head? Putting in their, you know, putting in their money in the trumpet, making a lot of noise. Clang, 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 clang. And then this poor widow putting in two copper coins. And, you know, many sermons about this, and for good reason. This is another sermon I'd be happy to preach some other time, but um, kind of elevate this scene as an example to extol the virtue of sacrificial giving. And, and our focus might easily be on Jesus lifting up this widow, and she deserves it. Her best investment, what's she going to do with her last two coins? She's going she's gonna to give them. She's going to trust all that she has. She's going to put herself fully at the feet of God. And that's, that's good advice. If you're ever down to your last two cents and can't figure out what to do, just throw yourself at the feet of God and see how that goes think it'll go pretty good. But in context, as we're reading this narrative, don't you think that there's more going on? Don't you think that Jesus has been listening to this, these religious people argue about religion all day long, and then his eyes lift up, and he sees this woman on the verge of ruin, and he's just kind of had it. How about you stop worrying about the theoretical woman who married seven brothers and is now in the afterlife, and instead of caring so much about her, you care about this woman who's right here in front of you, this widow, who while you guys are joining houses together, while you guys are bumping up your status with the Romans and your wealth, she's destitute. Stop being a gun collector and go 
shoot something. You know what I mean? Like, stop just hanging guitars on the wall and start a band. Like, I don't know what the metaphor is. Stop just talking about religion and actually as an expression of worship, go do something religious. It boggles the mind. These guys argue that there's no afterlife. Watch how human selfishness creeps in. So these guys argue that there's no afterlife, and here and now, that's all that matters, but they refuse to love the people in the here and now. Like, wouldn't it be more consistent with their understanding of the world to go, oh, if there's no heaven, then we got to take care of the widows now. We got to make sure that poverty is eradicated in our neck of the woods now because this is all there is. But instead, it has done the opposite. Man, I don't want to take a lot more of your time today. Can we just say this is the application? Would you just go and love somebody in Jesus' name this week? I do want to read this to you. Um, it's, a, it's a quote that every coach has read to their team at some point. <laughs> but let's, I don't know how to, can I say it as simply as I can? Could we be a church that does stuff? Not just that talks about stuff? Take a big swing. Do something that doesn't work. What's breaking your heart? Do something about it in Jesus' name. With no anger, with no frustration, with nothing but love and grace, not from one camp or another, not from one tribe or another, but just so stoked that God has transformed you that you are compelled to in some little part transform the world. This, I, I was just reflecting this morning, and I, I mean, I, I think about this quote all the time, and it's, it's the quote about the man in the arena from Teddy Roosevelt. Do you know it? You know it. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or how the doer of deeds could have done them better. Isn't that the Sadducees? They're all about pointing out the doer of the deeds who could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust, sweat, and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the, at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while, trying, while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know who neither know victory or defeat. Paul said it in a way that I think about all the time. This is all I want in my life. And I'm a hypocrite. I don't do it all. <laughs> it's not like I'm nailing this every day. But at the end of his life, Paul said he was being poured out like a drink offering. That's what I, that's what, that's what I want for all of us. That we would know what it feels like to be marred and dirty that we know, would know what it feels like to, to try and fail and to, to pour our lives out for the sake of the gospel, even if we never see a whole lot of progress made. But just because God is so great and what he has for us in the future is so spectacular, I don't want to waste my life just arguing about stuff. 
but I want my life to be poured out doing stuff that's counted as worship. Start with prayer. Who needs to be prayed for? (laughs) We all just added one to our prayer list. There are people in your life that need prayer. And you know, there's, there's an old way of uh, pastoral work where they talk about laboring in the Word or laboring in prayer. And if you've ever taken prayer as a ministry seriously, you know what it's like to labor in prayer. You know that it's a battle. But we can't have lazy praying Christians. Start with people that you don't have to seek out. I know your heart's broken for people across the globe. Let's express some worship to people that you see this week. Who needs just grace because they're a jerk every day? Who needs a little help? You've been the recipient of a little help now and again, haven't you? Why don't you be the source of a little help? What can you do if this week, instead of trying to be right, about everything theological. You spent that time and energy trying to be useful in the kingdom of God. Wouldn't it be great if we regularly could share stories of how we tried stuff that didn't work? Some that did. If we regularly got together and said, man, can you guys pray for me? And by that, we didn't mean because I'm sick or I'm broke or I'm you know, my knees hurt, but instead it was like, could you pray for me? Man, I am trying to pour into this guy at work. Man, there's a neighbor that just refuses to be loved and I'm doing everything I can. I've baked every kind of cookie I can think to bake. I suppose the Sadducees like being Sadducees, but Jesus thought they were pretty useless. Let's be useful. Heavenly Father, thank you for the call to help the widow and the orphan and the least of these and the lost. Thank you for your example, your integrity, Jesus, where, where we see you weeping over Jerusalem instead of, instead of only angry at them where we see your willingness to forgive and welcome people home, your willingness to to give up the glories of heaven for a time that you might come and rescue us. Lord, we have all been the recipients, not only of your great words, but of your actions. Would you help us to be those who not like the Sadducees sit around and talk all the time, but rather those who come together for inspiration, for togetherness, for fellowship, to be charged up so we can go into the world and live lives of worship. Lord, some of us probably even now are going, what would meaningful a, a life of, of meaningful service look like for me? I don't know how I could help. Lord, as we just pursue that, would you open up our eyes to where you could use us? I love you, God. Thank you for the scripture. In Jesus' name, amen.